So you guys, like I said, last week we left Moses in the cloud, remember? He's in the Shekinah glory. The, the, the glory of God is on this mountain. And if you guys remember, God, you know, we, they set up the altar. They set up the 12 pillars. We most likely think that he spilled you know, half of the blood of the all over the altar and did all that to kind of like say, yes, this is God's end of this bargain. This is God's end of this covenant, this Mosaic covenant. And then it says in chapter 24 that he threw the blood all over the people. That's over a million people. So I tend to believe that it was probably over these 12 pillars that he had set up to represent the people, all 12 tribes, right? And so he had done that. He went and he spilled the blood. However he did it, if he went and scattered it all over those people or over these 12 pillars, he did it. And that was the sealing of the covenant, right? God had made a covenant. And what, what do we do? What do we see all throughout? What do we take part in? And what are we going to take part in tonight? Communion? We're going to talk more about that. But what did they do in the Old Testament to seal a covenant as well as they broke bread? Remember, they just killed a bunch of animals and ate and, and burned them, some of them completely, but other ones... They made the offering. What do you do with all that good, awesome, medium rare steak? You eat it. <laughs> and so that's what they did, right? And they did it in the presence of God. Remember the 70 elders, Aaron, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, which we're going to read more about later, the stupid things they do, right? But they all go up along with Moses and Joshua, and they eat in the presence of God. They eat in God's presence. Basically, it seems like they saw his feet through this sapphire lining, this blue kind of haze, right? Because we know God's word tells us you cannot see the face of God and live. And so they ate there in the presence of God. And then Moses and Joshua went up further on the mountain and they waited there. They just waited. I don't think it's a coincidence, you guys, that last Wednesday we talked about this idea of waiting upon God, and then Sunday we started Acts, and we talked about waiting on God, the Holy Spirit. And there's something there for us to continue to chew on. But then he called Moses in deeper, right? And like I said, man, I want to be like Moses. Would I have been? I have no idea. I'm thankful that we have Jesus as our intermediary because I don't know that I could endure (laughs) just the sheer awesomeness of God's presence in the way that Moses got to experience it. And yet I would hope that I would be ready to do that. How about you guys? Right? So we saw all of that last week. And tonight we're going to start hearing directly from God, what God said to Moses and what God had in store for the people of Israel through what he tells Moses, what he instructs Moses to do. And so over these next three chapters, what we're going to be looking at is basically God telling Moses, this is what I want for you to do. I want you to build me a place to come and be in your presence. I want you to build a tabernacle, right? A tabernacle basically means a place to dwell, right? But think about this. The God of the universe, the God that created all things is telling Moses, you know what I want to do more than anything? I want y'all to build me a tent that I can come hang out with you guys in. That's pretty awesome, right? Everybody else is like, okay, I carved you out of wood and made you my little God, okay. Yeah, I like you. Oh, man, my candle caught you on fire and now you burned up. Stupid, I got to cut another one. 
This is the God of all gods. This is the God, the, the only God, the only God, right? The God in their estimation, I, I think at this point, their understanding, we've talked a lot about the fact that they were polytheistic. They had this idea that there were multiple gods and they, right, they had all the gods of Egypt. They had Baal. They had all these different gods and God continues to show them and tell them, listen, there are, uh, there are no other gods. They're all fake pieces of crap in comparison. Not even in comparison. They just are. They're garbage. They don't exist. They're not real. I am the one and only God. And I think it's awesome because he could have been on the mountain, gave him the Ten Commandments and say, follow him or die and walked away. He had every right to do that. He's a just God. Do you guys understand the mercy and the grace that he's pouring out on his people right here, right now by saying, you know what I want you to do? You just agreed to something that I know for a fact because I am all knowing. You will never be able to maintain, but I want you to build something for me. He didn't go in and right away and be like, y'all are idiots. Do you know what you just agreed to? He could have, but he didn't. He was like, I want you to build me something that I can dwell with you in. So let's start reading verse 1 of chapter 25. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine, twi- fine twined linen. That means, right, not just the hairs that make linen, but fine twine means literally they've been interwoven on their own by hand. I mean, it's a pretty expensive, pretty amazing thing. Fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. So there's a lot here in these first seven verses, but I want to kind of break these up a little bit. Look at verse two. It says, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from what? From every person, basically, whose heart moves to give. Moses is being asked by God to go to the people and say, hey, if you're willing to give, give. He says that before he even starts telling them what he wants. I think it's important. God asks us, you guys, not specifically to fulfill a need. He asks us to have hearts that are willing to give. David Guzik actually said this, in his commentary, I really liked it. He said, our giving should not be primarily because of need. We should primarily give because our willing heart compels us. You guys, we are going to see that, yes, there are very specific things that God is looking for, but I think it's an important point for us to stop and really process and think about in our own lives is this, that There are needs in this body specifically. There are needs that you might be made aware of. But if your heart is not willing to give, then you will not give it with the correct heart. You're like, duh, that makes sense. But the point I'm making is is if you're giving it with the wrong heart, can I just encourage you in something? I don't think God wants that. I don't think God wants you to give with an unwilling heart. So I think it's a heart thing that we have to work on first before we even look at a need that needs given to. Right? 
When God provides for us a different building at some point, we as a church, yeah, we're going to have needs, real needs. Like, hey, man, we need to like, we need manpower to help move all this stuff into a new building. We need money to help, you know, provide what we might need in the new building to fit it up and to make it what we need it to be possibly. We're going to have real needs, but can I just encourage you? Look, and by the way, when we moved in here, it was no less true. And people gave to real felt needs. But I tell you this, and I'm pretty sure I can say this with absolute confidence that nobody gave without a willing heart to give. Right? Like we didn't go to them and be like, man, y'all better give. Right? We're not doing the uh, Sunday tithe Sundays where we just hammer on everybody and tell them that they need to give money. No, I wait until we've come across scriptures like this and then I hammer on you and tell you that you need to have willing hearts of, gi- of giving. I love that God's word is that way. And you know what else I really love is that we go through verse by verse. So I'm like, we might not talk about this for a long, long time. I'm okay with that. Do you know why? I trust God that he provides for us and he always has, you guys. It is one of the main reasons why here at Awaken Great Bay, we don't ever pass the plate. Nothing against churches that do, but we do not in any way, shape, or form want you to be compelled or coerced to do anything. That's not true. I really pray the Holy Spirit compels and coerces you towards him, that's, but that's his gig. That's not my gig. But when it comes to giving, God doesn't need your money. We don't need your money. I trust that God will provide what we need and he continually has for many, many years. And I trust that he will continue to do that in the future. But how awesome is it to see a healthy church that has willing hearts to give? That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I've just got to say, God has blessed us as a church. But I don't think he's ever done growing us. And so, man, take that to the Lord on your own. But let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, you guys. This is what God has an expectation for us when it comes to a willing heart to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you guys probably know this verse. If you don't, here it is. You've heard me say before that we should be hilarious givers. This is where I get it from. Verse 7 of chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart or her heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word there in the Greek is hilarious. He loves a giver that's like, ha, yeah, woo, I get to give this away, sweet. That's what he loves. If you're there and you're like, oh, this is gonna kill me. I don't know what I'm doing. And if they don't use this the way I want them to, I'm gonna be super ticked off. Don't give it. Please, no, for real, don't. Matter of fact, if that's your heart and you come to me, I promise you, I will write you a check right there and give it back. We don't want it. God doesn't want it. He wants people that are cheerfully giving. Flip back over with me to Exodus. Basically, to your left, the entire Bible. (laughs) Another thing I want to talk about with giving, and this is leading us into this next part, verse 3 through 7, really, is that you see that God did have very specific things that he was asking for them to give, right? There wasn't, they didn't have George Washington and Ben Franklin in their pocket, right? They couldn't be like, oh, here's a couple hundred, here you go. They didn't have that. What did they have? Stuff. Remember what they got from Egypt? Gold, silver, all sorts of precious things. And so these were the most precious things they had. And that's what God's asking for from them. 
He's looking down this whole list of most valuable things that they had. Listen, a lot of times we're good at giving away the things that are excess, right? I don't know how many times I've heard things like, hey, uh, I got a new TV and this TV, I mean, it kind of works. You got to kind of jiggle the thing in the back. Do you want it for the church? And I'm like, no, man, take it to Salvation Army. You know where I learned that from? My pastor in Idaho. And incidentally, he's going to be here this Sunday as well. But he always said people would come in and bring their junk, basically. And we're like, no, dude, take it to the dump. We don't want it. Very rarely do you have people come in and be like, here is a 95-inch television, brand new in the box. Take it. Use it for the church. Like, and not that we need that, but you get my point? Like, Most of the time, we're giving out of our excess, especially here in America. And I'm not dogging that out. I'm not saying that's wrong, Right? Listen, there are a lot of TVs in this place that are excess TVs from my wife and I (laughs) over the years from 2014 on that we've given. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. But what I'm saying is if you look here what God's saying, he's saying, give me the very best of what you have. That's what I'm looking for. But but hey, if you're not willing to part with it, please don't. Right. Right? Gold, silver, bronze, all different colored yarns, linens, fine linens, you guys. This was not easy to come by. This took a lot of man hours and time, and it was very expensive for that reason, obviously. Goat's hair. Don't know why anybody would want that, but there you go. We're going to talk about why they wanted it. Tan skins. Acacia wood. Oil for lamps. All different types of spices. Onyx stones and all sorts of other stones that are going to be made into the priest's right, breastplate. The ephod with all the 12 stones representing all 12 tribes. It's a lot of awesome things. But notice that there's not one thing that's mentioned here that is not extremely valuable. These things would have to be requiring a willing heart to be giving. This wasn't a tax. They were not just saying, well, uh, this is going to go to the Salvation Army or the trash, or do you want it? Right? No, this was like... I'm keeping this, or I'm selling this and making money to go buy good, real food for a long time, or I'm doing something you know, viable and tangible for, for myself or my family, or I'm, I'm just going to give it to the Lord. I would encourage all of us, you guys, just take some time this week and seek the Lord. What, where's your heart? What's that look like for you? That's between you and him. I have no idea. No condemnation here. I don't want anyone to come back to me and be like, I can't believe you're dogging me out. Listen, I'm not. I don't care. I really don't. Verse 8. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So God wanted people to willingly give so that they could build him a sanctuary, a holy set apart place for God to dwell with them in their midst. That is awesome. I think it's pretty mind-blowing. God is holy, just, completely other, right? He's not like us. We're made in his image, but we are not him. He is holy other. And he wants people, he's like, man, you know what I really want? I want to hang out with you. And you know what else I really want? I want you to just give freely to this because you want to hang out with me too. 
And tabernacle, you guys, it means a residing place. But do you understand the depths of all of this, looking back on that? This was a tent. This was a very fancy tent. And we're going to talk a lot about what all of the, oh my gosh, there's so much richness in everything, the colors, the, the metals that are used, and the numbers, and oh man, I'm excited to dig into it all. But the reality is, you guys, is that this was really just a tent that got moved around. But even that is awesome, because God could have been like, y'all come back here when you want to hang out with me. But no, he's like, I don't want you to leave me, and I don't want to leave you. I want you to be with me, and I want to be with you all the time. Wherever I send you, I'm going with you. Guess what, church? We have the Holy Spirit tabernacling inside of us. Wherever we go, he's with us. Lord willing, our lives are growing to a place where wherever he's going, we're following him. That's the better response. But guess what? Dude, he loves us so much that even whenever we fall flat on our face or jump off a cliff or do something really stupid in our sinfulness, he's still there and he's like, get up, come on, let's go. Keep walking. I'm still with you. Let's move. It's awesome. You guys, we know that God is going to now give us these things that are all supposed to be inside the sanctuary. And we see that there's a very specific reason why all of these things that we're going to be talking about, right? The lampstand and the showbread, the table of showbread and the, you know, and all the, the menorah, basically the lampstand and, and all those different things and, the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant specifically. We're going to read about those different things tonight, but I want us all quickly to flip over to Hebrews chapter eight, because Hebrews gives us an indication why. Did you ever wonder that? Did you ever wonder like, okay, God, you're like telling everybody to like, hey man, don't come near me. Don't do this. Don't do that. But whenever you build my house, you better do it just so. Like down to the last minute detail. Well, there's a reason for that. And it's a beautiful reason. In Hebrews chapter eight, starting in verse one, it tells us, this is uh, the the author, Paul, telling us (laughs) what's going on. Uh, with why, why God was so picky about this whole thing. And he's using this whole idea of Jesus being our high priest as kind of an example. He says this, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, 
there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So why is God being so specific here? Because he's like, here's what I want you to see. What I want you to be able to see, what I want your priests to be able to walk into is what it looks like in heaven. That's the idea. Now, is it going to look specifically like this? Yes, I think it will to a level, right? There's going to be a similar layout. Definitely the types and the shadows that we're going to speak about over the next few weeks with what colors had meaning and why the numbers themselves were so specific. They all meant something. And how so much, even tonight, as we talk about the furniture, you guys, so much of it points to Christ. So much of it is literally God laying out and showing his people like, man, all of this matters. All of this is pointing towards me and not just towards me, but towards your salvation. It's all here for you to have a type and a picture of what you're going to have for eternity. And so, yes, this is important. This isn't just another thing that we're like, oh, come on, we've got to trudge through all the stupid ways that these things were built. No, not at all. Not at all. Chapter, uh, back in chapter 25 in Exodus, verse 10, we're going to read about the Ark of the Covenant. It says this. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half in its, its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make it, or you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. There shall be cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, basically a lid, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the first thing God tells Moses about that he needs to build is the ark of the covenant. You guys, let's look at a picture of the ark. This is a, obviously an artist's rendition of the Ark of the Covenant. Listen, I looked at, I don't know how many pictures of the Ark of the Covenant. Who knows what's wrong on this picture, probably? Where are the rings supposed to be? On the feet. Now, I could be getting nitpicky, but I think they're probably lower. Do you know why I think that is? This is just speculation. That was carried on the shoulders, right? If it's on the feet, how much higher is it going to sit above all the people, right? That's why I think you wanted it on the feet, not to make the people that have bad backs have to lean over and pick up this massively heavy thing. No, I think it was because it needed to be as elevated as possible when it was being carried. That's what I think. Now, again, 
Maybe I'm wrong about all this. It's just speculation. But the way I read it in Scripture, I think that that's a wrong picture. Here's the other thing, though. I found a lot of pictures with sticks through it without the gold wrapped over it. And I'm like, well, that's wrong, too. Y'all, don't you read the Bible, you freaks? (laughs) You guys, why did God start here? Because that's the most important piece of furniture there is in the whole tabernacle. Why are we still talking about the Ark of the Covenant? Not just because it's overlaid inside and out with gold, but because there's something about it. And we know, you guys, right? Not only are the Ten Commandments in there, the second set, we're going to read about that in the future. (laughs) What else is in there? You guys know? Yep, the budding rod. And what else? The manna, yeah. Yeah, the manna. There's a, a lot of archaeological truth hidden somewhere. So, yeah, I do think people want to get it. I think Christians want to see it because it would prove, quote-unquote, our stuff, even though I don't need it. And I think there's a very good reason why it's well hidden still. But I, I just want us to get kind of a picture of this. Listen, you know, there's cherubim. Imagine God sitting either above those wings or underneath those wings, and there's different renditions. Sometimes the wings are kind of way bigger and overarching so that it left a bigger hole in the middle there for the, the presence of God to reside, right? Sometimes you see it, and it's almost like a Viking thing when they're like straight out. Whatever, I have no idea what it looked like. We'll find out someday, I guess. But there is at least an artist's rendition of it. But the truth is, this is the most important piece of furniture that was made for the entire tabernacle. It remains the most important piece of furniture ever made. But it was not the most ornate. It's pretty simple, right? There was a little ridge around there. That was nice. We know that the the cherubim were hammered works, right? They were very, very nice. The whole lid was very, very nice. It was all pure gold. But really, this is just wood with a gold overlay inside and out. Again, still beautiful, still amazing. I'm not minimizing it. But it is not the most ornate thing. We're going to look at that later, but it's the most important. Why? Because this is where the presence of God resided, right? Other than that, it's just a box that holds some stuff, a very expensive box that holds some really amazing stuff. But without the presence of God, it's just that. The arc of the box, you guys, just for kind of our terms, was three feet nine inches long, two foot three inches wide, and two foot three inches high. This is like a big rectangle, basically. It's a rectangular box with poles on the sides that were never meant to be removed. Why? Because you didn't touch the ark. What happened? You guys remember? David, they're bringing it down. He touches it, dead. Even though he's like, God, I was trying to help you. Too bad. (laughs) Right? Don't touch the ark. It was made from acacia wood. A couple things about acacia wood. Acacia wood was super plentiful in the area. It's, it's, a wood, it's a wood, it's a type of tree that grows in the desert plentifully in Egypt and all throughout the area of Mount Sinai. But here's the cool part, you guys. And we're going to talk a lot about some of these things that we know. But it's also a type or a, an illusion, so to speak, to man. Right? Why? Because it's, it's a root that grows out of dry ground. Just like us. So acacia wood typically is kind of looked upon and says like, oh, that means man. 
That means mankind. That means sinful man growing up out of dry ground. Gold, you guys, represents holiness or divinity. Do you, do you see the picture of Christ even in this? Mankind wrapped with God. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Fully God and fully man together at the same time. Let's take it a different way. Jesus wrapping himself around us sinful human beings. Either way you slice it, it still has depth of meaning. And it's awesome because this is the most important thing. This is where God's presence dwelt. And even in this, he was trying to point something out to us. He was trying to point the people of Israel. He was trying to point to us and say, I got you. My plan has been set in motion before Adam and Eve were even a thought. I don't know if it's impossible for him to have a, not have a thought, if that makes sense. He's all-knowing, so there was never a time he didn't have the thought. But you get what I'm getting at, right? Are we all on the same page? <laughs> as much as we can be. <laughs> all this wood was overlaid in gold, completely covered in gold. And as of this moment in history, God was telling Moses, hey, I'm going to hand you right, these, the Ten Commandments. I'm going to hand you the rules, basically, of the covenant, and you're going to put them in there, this thing that hasn't been given yet. And also, by the way, I haven't given you the stone tablets yet, but that's going to go in there. And then the lid was going to be the mercy seat put on over it. So verse 23, let's keep reading. We're going to read about the table of showbread. Verse 23 says this, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a, a, its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall, excuse me, you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying the legs are going to stick further down and the rings are going to sit basically right up near where the table itself sits, right? It doesn't need to be up in the air as much. Uh, verse 29, and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its uh, flagons or basically its pitchers and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. The table of showbread. So we move on now to this table, and so let's look at a picture of that. So this is a gold painted <laughs> wood thing, but it gets the point across, right? So there's these poles there. So again, this was carried, but if you notice, do you see that there's bread on top of each of those? And they were divided into two, right? Six on each side. And there was those little pitchers or the flagons. I don't know how you say that word. I think flagons, but they're in there in the middle. And what's in those things is what? Frankincense. Frankincense is in there. So this whole table, again, fashioned from acacia wood and then overlaid completely with gold. There would be dishes made of, of gold and, and, the, and the pitchers made of gold. All of everything that was on that table was made of gold. The only thing that wasn't made of gold, right, was the bread. But the bread then would have some things poured on it. And we're going to look at that. That's what those pitchers of frankincense are for. So these 12 loaves, you guys, are a clear sign of the fellowship with God. 
It was bread that was supposed to be eaten in God's presence. Does that sound familiar at all? Sounds a lot like communion, doesn't it? So there are some things that were told about the bread itself in Leviticus chapter 24. Flip over there with me. I'll just say this. If you guys come over the next, I'm going to say, three, four weeks of this, get ready to have your Bible moving all over the place because when we're in these type of passages, I'm not just going to, I hope and pray you guys wouldn't just be like, oh, pastor said it, so it must be true. We're going to go look at stuff. We're going to get our heads around things. I think it's important for us to be digging through and learning and understanding that there's a lot here. The Bible always is its best interpreter of itself, right? So Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5 through 9 tells us about the bread itself that was put on that table. It says this, starting in verse 5 of chapter 24, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them apart, or I'm sorry, set them in two piles, six in a pile, and on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put forth frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is, for, or it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, right, the priests here, and they shall eat it in a holy place, set, uh, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. What's it saying? What's God saying in Leviticus? He's saying, listen, this bread is supposed to be really, really good bread. It's supposed to be made of the best flour. This frankincense, you guys, is supposed to be pure frankincense. It wasn't meant to be cut with other things. It wasn't, no, it was pure. It was expensive. It was not the cheap stuff. And they were supposed to pour that over the bread itself. When? On the Sabbath day. All the old bread would come off the table and they would eat it in the presence of God. And it was only for the priests. They'd put the new bread on and they'd pour that over that, over, pour the pure frankincense over it. Here's what's interesting, you guys. Did you know that frankincense kills bacteria? Did you also know that it specifically kills yeast? <laughs> Very interesting. What was not in this bread? Yeast. What does yeast represent all throughout Scripture? Sin. So it was almost like, look, I know y'all are sinful, but here is this perfection, so to speak, of bread on the table made of the finest flour, the best there is to offer for all 12 tribes. But I'm pouring my grace on you. I'm pouring my grace all over it. It's kind of cool. The taste of frankincense, because remember, they, they ate this bread that's a week old now with frankincense poured all over it. So I was like, I wonder what frankincense tastes like. I don't know. Are you guys, do you guys ever do that? Like, this is what I do when I'm studying. I'm like, huh, I wonder what that's about. So I looked up, and here's what I found. Three very specific words, bitter, spicy, and nauseous. <laughs> no idea what it really tastes like. Here's what I do know. And this is what I find intriguing. Those priests had this privilege of being able to partake of this bread as a representation of the entirety of Israel, right? Before the Lord. And not only did they have this awesome opportunity to eat this really good bread that was made with the best stuff, 
but they did it in a way that gave them a very distinct flavor that they were not going to go get at home. Right? Like this is, it was different. Right? Like nobody comes to the communion table. Tonight we're going to take communion. Nobody's going to be like, oh man, I could have been waiting all week for this tiny little cube of gluten-free nothingness. Right? Like nobody's looking at it that way. But the truth is, man, it's a picture, though, of what we have to look forward to, which is the, 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 the what's the word I'm looking for? The feast of the bride and the groom, right? The marriage feast of the lamb. That's the word I'm looking for. I had bridal feast, and I'm like, that's not right. What is it? Right? That's what we have to look forward to. That's what this communion is. It's saying, like, it's, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is the blood poured out for you. That, that means those things. But, you guys, we're going to get to eat with him in heaven. We're going to get to hang out with him and just eat. And, dude, the calories won't matter. It's going to be awesome. But think about the fact that Aaron and his sons and, and every other priest after that point got to just go and partake with in front of God's presence, in God's presence, partake of this very distinct bread. Even if it wasn't the best tasting bread, can you imagine how much it did taste good in their mouths? To be like, oh, Lord, what what did Aaron do to deserve this? Nothing. We're going to read in a little bit that he's like, I don't know, I put some gold in and a calf popped out. He deserved none of it, not one bit of it, and yet God saw fit to put him there anyway. It's pretty awesome. Verse 31. It says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cup, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. The calyxes there. You guys, uh, anybody have uh, supertunias or petunias in their house? Or have they ever dealt with petunias? It's every flower has this. But a petunia specifically is very easy to see because the petunia itself flowers and it's beautiful and then it wilts away. And then what do you do? You go and you pluck the petunia out. And that little part that's left, the green part that ends up making a new flower come out of it, that's the calyx. It's the green part where the flower, the pretty part comes out. That's the calyx, just so you know. I had to look that up online to figure it out. Now you know, if you take one thing away, now you know that. (laughs) Verse 32. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms each, blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, right on the center post, basically, the seventh part of it, there should be four cups made like almond blossoms and their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. 
It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. By the way, a talent of pure gold, you guys, was 75 pounds of pure gold. This is a lot of gold that has been melted down and then fashioned into one single, beautiful, ornate piece of furniture. And notice there's no wood in here. This is all gold, solid gold. Interestingly enough, when we look next week or two, two weeks from now, next week we got a treat for you, but two weeks from now when we kind of dig into this idea of the tabernacle itself, it has got so many layers and depths of fabrics and skins and everything else that guess what happened when you walked in that tent without any light? You were in pitch dark. So what did this lampstand provide? Light. Why is it pure gold? Because whose light is in us? God's light. No man's involved in the light, light to the world. It's only God. Kind of cool, right? So all the light that opened up and lit up this whole place, you guys, was purely divine. It was divine light. You get the picture? There's an idea of what it might have looked like, but the idea that we can definitely take away from it, sometimes it gets a little confusing. Off of this center post, there's three on one side and three on the other, which makes a menorah. Menorah, you guys, is the Hebrew word. If you guys are like, Mom, why do they say all that fancy words like menorah? That's because menorah is Hebrew for lampstand. That's it. Nothing, nothing spectacular there, but that's a menorah. And this lampstand was by far the most ornate piece of furniture. And isn't it fitting that this is the one thing that's made of pure gold to kind of signify and, and say, man, the light that's being shed into this place, the light that's being cast into this entire area for God is from God. Here's the deal. Kind of a short message tonight because I didn't really want to dive into the tabernacle. But I think there's some really interesting and important points from all of this. And you guys, maybe some of you or maybe somebody that's going to listen to this online later will be like, I didn't hear anything important. I heard about giving and nobody wants to hear about that. And then I heard a boring message about stupid furniture. <laughs> if that's all the deeper you want to dig into this, then I guess I can't argue with you. Right? Isn't it true of Scripture? Uh, without the Holy Spirit enlightening it to us, it does come off stupid sometimes. And you do read some things, especially in the Old Testament, right? And you're like, well, what's the point of this? Man, there's so much here. We've barely scratched the surface, you guys. I'm saving some of this stuff for later because there's so much here. We could teach this two more times at least and just dig into more about what these things mean and what they signify and how not even, we haven't even touched how they're laid out in there and what all that signifies, you guys. There's so much in God's word if we're willing to go get it. And the cool part is we can't go get it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to open it up to us. You guys, here's the major things I feel like we need to really look at from this chapter. The first thing is this, God does not need our stuff. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our time or our energy. Yet, he asks for all of it from a person with a willing heart. 
He doesn't ask you to specifically fund anything. Why? I'll tell you why, I think. I think the main reason is, is because of something that we see all the time in churches. How many people have been in a church with beautiful, amazing stained glass windows that says, dedicated to such and such? Do you know why those families have dedications to them in the stained glass? Because they gave a crap ton of money <laughs> to that church at some point. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but do you understand how quickly pride could grow up in that? I've known people that are like, that was my great-great-grandma. Well, good for you. What have you done for lately? <laughs> you know, what has God told you to do? Why do you give a hoot what your great-great-great-grandma did? You're not even following the Lord, dude. But they're proud that they're in some stained glass window, that their family name is there. Do you get what I'm getting at? I think that's one of the big reasons why God doesn't want us funding things. He wants us to say, here, I'm giving with a willing heart to you, God, whatever that means. What about this, you guys? Anybody been on a lot of Christian campuses? There's a lot of Christian campuses that if you look at any one of the buildings, they're all named after different people. Very rarely are they named after people that gave some massive level of theological significance to the college. Usually, it's the people that gave the most money to the college. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's 100% wrong. I'm saying, do you understand how pride can quickly creep into those things? That's what I'm saying. Like I said before, you guys, if you're not giving hilariously, don't give. Second thing I want to look at, and the thing I find the most interesting about this chapter is this, is that was the first part, but then I love how in the details God is when it comes to the parts of how you come to him. Right? Like, God wasn't worried about your money. He's like, if you don't want to give, don't give. Nobody cares. It's fine because God's going to take care of it. But then when it came to like, hey, this is how you're going to come to me. This is how I'm going to dwell with you. This is the way that you're going to enter in to spend time with me. There is going to be a way that that looks, you guys. We talked about the furniture tonight, but we all know where did the Ark of the Covenant exist? Where was the presence of God? Not where the lampstand and everything else was. That was in the holy place. No, it existed in another room in the back called the most holy place that only the high priest went in once a year. Why? Because you didn't just walk up in there and be like, hey, not under this covenant. Now, guess what? We have the privilege like we talked about last week. God is not saying to Moses, yo, come up, man, the thunder, the lightning, don't be freaked out. Come on. He's like, through the blood of Christ, he's like, come in, please sit at my feet, crawl up on my lap. Let's talk. That's the relationship we have. We have a new covenant like, like we read in Hebrews, man. It's a better covenant. We should take full advantage of it. But I love that God's in the details because even in that, listen, tons of people say tons of prayers to God, and I'm not saying they're not heard, but I will say this. If people refuse to accept that Christ died on the cross and rose again, I still think God hears their prayers. But I think if they're looking for God's intervention in the entirety of their lives without, without the peace that matters most, the detail that is the most important, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, I think that God still might 
throw them a bone, but they're not going to find themselves in heaven at the, end of each, at the end of their lives. They need that. God's still in the details. And I think it's important to kind of examine that. I think it's important to look at what level of care and concern God had for his people back then, somewhat for their own safety, because God helped anybody that would have walked up in, including the high priest, except for the time that was allotted, Yom Kippur. Right? What would it have meant? Death. Why? Not because God's up there being some weird vindictive freak. No, because he's like, I'm holy and you are not. Christ is our holiness, right? He is our righteousness. We don't go to God and be like, oh, look how good I am, God. We go to God and say, man, I suck, but I'm so thankful that you sent your son to die for me. And because of that, I can sit and talk to you. What does all this look like in your life? Because God isn't just looking for our money. And he's definitely not just looking, he's really not looking for your money. He's looking for all of you. Your entire life. Your emotions and your thoughts. The way you think about everything. All of it. I mean everything. It's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, think about it from the perspective of even just deep friendship or marriage or something like that where you're like, man, like you make these vows before the Lord and you say like, man, through sickness and in health, for richer or for poor or whatever. We were just listening to a podcast, my wife and I, the other day, and, and this, this uh, girl had a girl, had a boyfriend and she, she got um, shot twice by this guy that she had dated a year prior who just randomly showed up. It's called I Survived. Really crazy and interesting if you ever want to listen to it. It's crazy. But the guy came in, shot her twice as she ran away, and then proceeded to get in his truck and run her over like three times all through her midsection to try to like squish her and kill her. She survived all of that, right? She's paralyzed, obviously. She was paralyzed when she was shot, which is why she didn't get up and run away from the truck because she couldn't move. He shot her through the spinal cord. I say all that to say this. Her boyfriend was there. They were together for a little while. And, uh, you know, she's going through all sorts of things, all sorts of emotions, things that I can't even fathom, right? That I don't think any of us could really fathom what emotional wreck and damage that that would do to your life. That some random guy that you were nice to once comes in and does these things to you a year later. But the reality is, is that this guy ended up taking off because he was like, I can't deal with this. I can't do it. And it sparked a conversation with my wife and I where I'm like, she's like, what would you do if something like that happened to me? I'm like, we'd suffer through till we're done. And I don't mean that to sound ignorant. I'm saying through sickness and health, for richer or poorer, we got the poorer part down. (laughs) Right? Till death do we part. Those words mean something. Have you said sort of the same thing to God, right? Again, knowing full well that you're going to screw up that vow. You're not perfect. 
But I just want to encourage you guys to take some time as we prepare our hearts for communion to think, man, like, Lord, what areas of my life? And again, let's not be so fickle to just minimize it to money. Seriously. What about your time and your energy and where your mind is sometimes and the way you're thinking about things? And, and let's throw friends up on there too, right? I, I've talked to a lot of people in our church that are like, man, this, I, I'm growing closer to the Lord and my friends are going the opposite direction and what do I do about that? And I'm like, sometimes you cut ties. And sometimes, not always, and that's only between you and the Lord to figure that out. I'm not here telling you what to do. I'm saying go to God and figure it out. Seek him. What things does he want? He, I'll, I'll tell you what he wants. He wants all of you. What does that look like? It's going to look very different for me than it does for you or you or anybody else. I think if that's our aim, though, if we've made that vow to God and we trust that the Holy Spirit's power is dwelling inside of us and it's going to encourage us and give us the courage to walk that out day by day by day, even when we're like, God, I want to give you all my energy, but you know what I really want to do today? Nothing. I want to sleep all stinking day. Trust that God's going to do that. And you know what else? Trust that his grace is sufficient if you do sleep all stinking day. (laughs) We serve an awesome God, amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I praise you, Lord, that we can come to it and that we can dig in and that we can understand more about it, Lord. And Father, in all of these areas of our lives, Lord God, that we can just look and say, man, thank you, God, that you, even in these moments, God, you saw fit to pour your grace literally in the form of frankincense all over these 12 tribes, Lord. And your blood, Jesus, is poured all over us as Christians, Lord God. And Father, I pray that, Lord, we would never, ever, ever take it for granted. That, Lord, tonight as we come to your table in communion, God, that we would understand that the blood that was poured out by you was costly. It was way more costly than this pure frankincense was that was poured all over the bread every week. It was the most costly substance that's ever been and ever will be. God, your body, living a perfect life when we never, ever could, Being broken for us, God, is the most amazing gift that we could ever fathom. So God, I thank you. I thank you for the Mosaic Covenant, God, because it just shows us so, so much, so many things, Lord. It shows your grace. It shows your mercy. And Father, it shows your justice. But God, I am very, very thankful for the new covenant of Christ. Lord, have your way in us, I pray. Move in our hearts, Lord, as we prepare ourselves for communion. And God, in all these things, I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, Connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.